Hello. We are taking a week or two off from new episodes of the pod. The first time in 65 weeks that we've done that as I'm at home with a newborn and you're hopefully taking some time at the end of the year to reflect or hang with family or watch Jingle All the Way, which I watched yesterday for the first time in probably 15 years and it was worse than I remembered, which somehow made it way better than I remembered. Anyway, I wanted to thank everyone for listening all year. I'm so glad that people get value from the pod and I absolutely love doing it. So thank you. The last episode was the most listened to and the most shared episode of the year and also got me probably 50 or so emails that said some variation of, quote, man, I needed that. So if you maybe need a kick in the butt to take yourself a bit more seriously, I highly recommend it if you haven't listened to it yet. It was called How to Take Yourself Seriously and was as much a reminder to me as to you. Also, I've got a pretty fun year in review and year prep tool I'm going to push to the folks on the newsletter towards the end of the year I've been working on for a while. So if you haven't signed up already and want that, head to gettacklebox.com and sign up for the newsletter and you'll get it. Lastly, if you do want to jump on a startup idea next year, the code HOLIDAY will get you half off your first month of Tacklebox. Apply at gettacklebox.com. Maybe if you do a year from today, things will look very, very different than they do now. I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday season. I hope you all sell the position and focus on opportunities, not problems, and avoid whisper ideas like the plague. I hope to see you next year. Now, here is one of my favorite episodes of the year, one that was shared a ton and referenced a ton. It's also from March, and we got a whole bunch of new folks who weren't listening back then, so it's probably new to you. Enjoy. We've started a lot of businesses on the pod. Some have been grabbed by listeners and are now being run through Tacklebox. Shout out half bottles of wine at Tuesday Wine Company and the sleep consulting service Get Your Eight. Others haven't been picked up yet. I still have no idea how no one's run with my bakery concept, two truths in a pie, or my restaurant idea for bread and dipping sauces called the Get About It. But then again, The Office was almost canceled after season two, so sometimes brilliance is hard to see. Anyway, today we're gonna start something new. I am absolutely not going to say this is a good idea, but I am going to say that lots of smart people have pitched me some version of this idea, so maybe it's worth a look. Ideas are cheap. Let's see what happens. At the beginning of every pod, I write one question on the top of my page that is the outline for the episode. The question is, what am I trying to say that's counterintuitive and will likely be valuable to whoever listens? For today's pod, I wrote at the top of that page, setting your life up so that you're always working on an idea on the side is the single highest ROI activity anyone can engage in. Working on a startup isn't what people make it out to be. It isn't a binary choice of give up your life and put every egg into a specific basket or don't. It's best when it becomes a process, like learning to play the piano, something you do consistently in the margins and continually get better at. Except it's really unlikely that eight months after starting to play piano, you're so good that it changes the trajectory of your life. Thus the ROI thing. Startups have a truly unique time to potential payoff ratio. One of my best friends is a poker player. He won a World Series of Poker event a few years back, and as I say that out loud, he honestly doesn't brag about it enough. He ended up at the final table playing heads up, one-on-one, -on -one, against a pro. My friend only does this in his spare time. He's got his own hedge fund called Moo Point Capital. He too loves preposterous names. It was televised and the announcers gave my friend no shot. His opponent acted like the conclusion was foregone too. But my buddy hung around eventually winning in a marathon seven-hour session. 
There aren't many times in your life when you can watch someone you're close to literally reach their dreams in real time. It was surreal. His approach to poker is fascinating to me. He continually puts himself in positions where the payoff is absurdly high. He enters the high stakes tournaments that have huge entry fees but exponentially larger payoffs for the winner. Then he tries to tilt the odds slightly in his favor on every hand. He certainly bluffs here and there, but his strategy is far more around always having a percentage edge. If he's 54% likely to win a hand, he'll play. If he's 40% likely to win, he won't. He's adept at looking at a table, calculating his likely odds, and making a decision with long-term in mind. If he plays 1,000 hands, he's almost guaranteed himself to win more than he loses. And when he loses, he doesn't get upset. When you've got a 60% chance of winning, you're still going to lose 40% of the time, and that's fine, because that's the game he's playing and he understands it. If he plays in enough tournaments with huge payoffs, he's bound to win big eventually. This will, theoretically, more than pay for all the losses. The model looks a bit like venture capital. He's in it for the long tail returns. He's been doing it for over a decade, and it's worked. Tilt the odds, pay the entry fee, and play a lot of tournaments that are really worth winning. And maybe that's why he doesn't brag about it. The result was expected. Lots of people show up at a poker table the one time a year they go to a casino and they win or they lose and they're happy or they're sad and then they think they're great or awful because of it. My friend is playing an entirely different game. One, he can actually win. Most entrepreneurs I speak with act like that person at the casino once a year. They sit around on the sidelines until what they think of as the perfect idea comes along then they put all their money into a development shop or building a product or they quit their job and do whatever for six months as their savings fritter away. It very rarely works out. And more often than not, they just sit on the sidelines forever because that perfect idea never comes. The better approach is similar to the one my buddy takes. Try lots of things over a long period of time. Pay the entry fees each time, knowing that it's an incredible use of your money because the more you play the game the right way, the more likely you are to win eventually. The game is structured so that if you can stomach the losses in the near term, the long term gains will pay you back handsomely. And it's so rarely going to be obvious which idea or which iteration of the idea is the quote right one. Humans are so bad at predicting this sort of thing. It'd be like predicting a hand before you saw the cards. Risk equals the likelihood of failure times the cost of failure. Minimize the cost of failure to minimize your risk. Play a game with huge potential rewards and manageable entry fees and play it a lot, then we'll see what happens. Today, we'll use four questions that can help you play that game. It'll help you think through a business we could spin up quickly to see the potential. Something we could do on the side. The idea we'll take is kitchen organizing. Skeptical? Good. That's the point. Great ideas usually sound silly at first, and today's pod is about quickly testing out whatever idea you've got that pops up in the moment. We've had lots of people pitch us some sort of organizing consultancy. Organizing closets, bedrooms, kids' playrooms, kitchens, your dating app matches. Literally three friends of ours, very successful friends, each pitched us leaving that successful job to start a kitchen organizing startup in the past month or two. There's got to be something there. So let's think through it. After some smooth jazz. Hey, we've got a few slots opening up for Tacklebox where we help people turn ideas into startups as a few of our founders have now outgrown the core program as their businesses have scaled a bit. So if you've got an idea you've been sitting on and you want to turn it into a startup, let's do it. 
and to sweeten it a bit more and maybe kick you in the butt a bit, if you apply in the next two weeks and get accepted, you'll get 50% off your first month. Just head to GetTackleBox.com and apply with what you're working on and put code HOLIDAY in the application when it asks for a referral code. Back to it. When you walk through Little Italy in New York City, there are always hosts trying to usher you into their restaurant. Because I'm endlessly fascinated by stuff like this, multiple times on nice days in the spring or summer, I've thrown in my AirPods with no volume, pretended I'm on some important call, and stood next to the host trying to coax tourists walking by their restaurant to eat. I'll stand by each host for maybe five to 10 minutes listening to their pitches. They usually get caught in some rhythm, repeating things like, come in, we've got a table, or best Italian food in the city, or take a look at our menu. They'll often try to physically block the sidewalk so that they can herd people in like cattle. This doesn't work. It's a volume play that picks up stragglers here or there, but they seem just as likely to get an iced coffee thrown in their face as they are to get a new customer. There is, however, one guy who gets easily triple the number of people walking down the street to stop in his restaurant. I eventually, unfortunately, learned his name is Gino, but before that, I called him Penny Vaca Pete. That's what we'll call him for the rest of the episode. I don't know if the restaurant Penny Vaca Pete works at actually has great Penny Vaca, but man, does he make it seem like they do. When people walk by, he locks eyes with them and he asks, do you like Penny Vaca? This catches people off guard. New York City overwhelms your senses, but very rarely is the thing overwhelming you, asking you a pretty reasonable question. Lots of people, one group every minute or two, play along and answer something like, um, yeah, I like it. Pennevaca Pete then throws his head back, rolls his eyes, and says, Oh man, have you got to try our Pennevaca. People come from 50 blocks away for our Pennevaca. Are you all about to grab lunch? If the group answers this question, PVP's got them dead to rights. If they do answer and don't just say no thank you and walk by, they usually say something like, Yes, we were going to whatever restaurant. PVP then responds, well, our penny vodka is much better than theirs. If you like penny vodka, don't make a mistake. If you don't want the best penny vodka in the city, by all means, go to that other restaurant. Then he moves on to the next group. This dude absolutely funnels tourists into his restaurant with his penny vodka spiel. I love listening in as families convene to make their decision. Usually someone pipes up, well, I was probably going to order penny vodka anyway, and this place sounds like it's got great penny vodka, so... The biggest lesson I can teach people about starting a business is that you won't be able to convince anyone to do anything. If someone is walking to work and you try to get them to stop to eat your penny vodka, no matter what you say, it ain't happening. And if you push, you'll get that iced coffee in your face. People really, really don't like being sold to when they don't already want the thing you're selling. But if someone already made the decision to go to lunch, and hey, they like penny vodka, you can absolutely get them to change their plans and eat your penny vodka rather than someone else's. Just ask Penny Vodka Pete on Mulberry Street. The guy's crushing it. This is the most important initial question to ask when you're starting to build a business idea. And here it is formally. Question one of four. Who's already actively looking for this? Who's already aware they've got the problem you're solving and is trying to solve it now? You can ride a wave, but you cannot create one. So for our kitchen organizing idea, the first thing we've got to do is define the problem. Because if we need to know who knows they already have a problem with kitchen organizing, we need to know exactly what the problem is. Penny Vodka Pete could ask lots of people if they were going to lunch. 
He targeted tourists over locals because he had a good idea that they'd be less sure about where to go. His customers' problem was that they were in New York City. Specifically, they were in Little Italy. They were hungry, and they wanted something worthy of the story about New York City Italian food. The second he told the family about penne vodka, subconsciously they were hoping it'd be the best penne vodka they'd ever have, because that makes a great story when you get back home. We went to New York City, we ate in Little Italy, and you can't believe how good this penne vodka was and how charismatic the host was. He told us it'd be the best penne vodka we'd ever eat, and I gotta tell you, it was better than he said it would be. So, their problem was food, but their more nuanced problem was that they needed to find a story. For kitchen organizing, we need to start with some level of depth. Who already knows they need their kitchen organized? What are they doing now, their equivalent of wandering the New York City streets for lunch, to show us that they've got this problem and they want to solve it? You can easily get tripped up here. Or you can skate through it and say, oh, I'll just put up some Instagram ads or a TikTok video and people will find me. And maybe they will, but we've done this darn near a thousand times now and it's very unlikely. You need to purposefully choose your customer they will not find you. So start with inflection points, things people do that let us know they've got a problem. For kitchen organizers, a direct one is maybe they'll Google something like kitchen organizing hacks. Unfortunately, that's cluttered and expensive. We'll need to get more specific. This is where you might start with your expertise and knowledge of a specific problem within the broader space. One of the people who pitched us this idea had a 50 square foot kitchen and made it work. Kitchen organizing hacks or tools or products specifically for tiny kitchens might be a more manageable search. But this too isn't all that helpful as I check it out. We're looking for a more cohesive customer to start with and there are lots of types of people who have small kitchens. A better inflection point might be people who just moved into a new apartment and their kitchen is much smaller now than the kitchen they had in the past. People move to New York City all the time and they are shocked at not only the price of the apartments, but how freaking small our kitchens are. They've got to cram everything from a 200 square foot kitchen into 50 square feet and it is not easy. Maybe it's couples that you target. One person just moved into the other person's apartment and suddenly they've got twice the kitchen supplies and half the space. Either way, you're piggybacking off of a move. There's inflection because there are moving boxes. There's stuff. In the second case, there are uncomfortable decisions to be made around whether you're keeping one person's set of plates they grew up with or the other person's Union College basketball mug that they love and sure it's a little big, but they've been through a lot with that mug and now I'm projecting and using the pod for therapy. I just like my mugs. Is that a crime? Anyway, find a customer that has inflection points you can target. For the kitchen organizing idea, we'll start with people moving to New York City into a small apartment with a small kitchen potentially with a significant other. One question I'd ask yourself here is who has a truly terrible alternative to us solving the problem for them? Penne Vaca Pete had to deal with lots of other restaurants literally steps away. Their alternative was pretty good. When I think about the couple moving in together, their alternative to us figuring out the organization of their kitchen is them fighting it out tooth and nail to figure out who gets to keep what. That doesn't sound so good. The big thing to remember here is that this is all temporary. We'll see how it works and we'll adjust. At the end of the day, we need a customer we can define and get in touch with easily, and we shouldn't progress until we've got one, which makes question two particularly important. How are you gonna find this person? The tighter you are on customer, the easier it'll be to find them. 
If you're broad, you're going to have to be one of those hosts shouting, want lunch, to whomever's walking down the street. Penny Vodka Pete narrowed it down to people who liked Penny Vodka. Not world-changing, but at least a more specific ask. In the startup world, specificity equals trust. If we put out Instagram ads that say something like, we'll help you organize your kitchen, we'll get no responses and there will certainly be no cohesive customer. If we said something like, you just moved in with your fiance in Tribeca, you've got an 80 square foot kitchen, you've got two of everything and you can cut the passive aggressiveness with a knife, we help, you'll have a lot of people look at the ad confused and a few people jam their thumb by clicking on their phone so hard because they need you and you are specific to an urgent and painful problem they have right now. The more specific you are, the more trust they'll have, the more action they'll take. Notice that the solution itself doesn't matter. If you can describe the problem, you can build enough trust to buy yourself a click or an email or whatever. Trust definitely comes from the message, but it can also come from the channel. Instagram is broad. If you posted this in a Facebook group for parents with five-year-olds and positioned it as organizing your kitchen to keep your kids who can now reach counters safe, that'd build more trust than a random ad. The messenger can obviously create trust too. If a member of that Facebook group posted saying that they'd use this service and it was incredibly helpful, conversion would be through the roof. For our purposes, I'd make a few broader Instagram ads around moving in with significant other and cramming your kitchen stuff together and moving to New York City going from a 150 square foot kitchen to a 70 square foot kitchen and how you can make that all work and work beautifully. I'd also make TikToks about how you help this type of customer decide what to keep. Ideally, you have a super organized tiny kitchen yourself and you show it off. TikTok is a fantastic channel for this right now. Now that we've got a customer and a way to find them, we need something to offer them. Question three then is, how can we run a test in the next 10 days that gives the people we've found value? Everyone who pitched us the kitchen organizing idea thought about it as an app. They figured their customers would record their kitchens with their phone and either stylists or some artificial intelligence would suggest products to help declutter or new strategies to make the kitchen work better. Everyone we spoke with also thought step one for them was building that app. If you listen to the pod, I sure hope you know that that's not step one, and I hope you even shuddered hearing that people think that that's what they should do first. Step one from a product perspective is figuring out how we can create value, ideally a proxy of the eventual value we would create without spending $50,000 on an app that's almost certainly gonna be totally wrong. We wanna figure out how to do this in a weekend. The best products are built as a reaction to how customers deal with the problem now, not how we think about that problem alone in the basement. To figure this out, we've got to interact with our customers. So there are a few ways that we could test. Generally, I break up product value into two categories, foot in the door value and longer feedback loop value. Something you can offer that provides immediate value and has low friction often opens the door for the more complex, longer feedback loop product. For foot in the door, the value you might offer is a decision. What to keep, what to ditch. Maybe you have people send you a picture or a quick TikTok video of their kitchen, and then you create a TikTok response telling them what to keep and what to throw out or donate. Maybe you offer a 10-minute FaceTime call where you make suggestions as people take you through their kitchen. Maybe you send a list of your top 10 organizing products for 70 square foot and below kitchens. The longer feedback loop, higher touch, higher price product might be you going in there and actually organizing their kitchen for them. For a few hundred bucks, you'll spend two hours while they go for a walk. 
You'll organize the best things and fill a few boxes with the things you suggest they toss. You might bring products to organize that you would suggest that they can buy a la carte. Maybe you even offer to donate or take the stuff with you that you suggest that they get rid of. Maybe you even offer to come back every month like a cleaning service, drop yourself in a category they already spend money on and can easily digest. There are a lot of ways you can go, and the key here is to just start doing things. To try to solve their problems fast, manually, and with plenty of feedback. This can seem crazy if you've never done this sort of thing before, but I promise you that it isn't. The key is specificity, making it easier on yourself to do. When you try and serve a bunch of different customers for a bunch of different use cases, copy gets hard, targeting gets hard, the proxy of the product gets really hard. But when you get extremely specific, this all becomes pretty manageable. You're curating your customers here, trying lots of different approaches to see who leaps out of the fray to raise their hand and tell you they are going to be a good customer for you to build for. The final question is the hardest. What does this customer really want? What's their job to be done? This will come from interactions with customers, specifically interviews, which you should be doing to answer the first few questions, and interactions as they use your product and react to the messaging. The way to think of this is the thing the customer is really hiring you to do. I alluded to this with our boy, Penny Vaca Pete. The family of Taurus is looking for lunch, sure. And ideally, they'd like that lunch to be good. But really, they are hiring Penny Vaca Pete for a story. They want to feel like they have their New York City moment. They're hiring this lunch for the Instagram pictures, for the photos in their text chain of pasta, for the memories that pop up a year later on their photo stream. So the more over-the-top Penny Vaca Pete can be, the more likely they'll remember him. The more he can make it feel like they're about to have the best ex in New York City, the better their story to friends becomes when they get home. No one remembers the pretty good anything, and usually the person who decides what's the best or not isn't the person eating it. Even something as logistical as kitchen organization is deeply emotional. If you just moved in with your significant other, what are you really hiring a kitchen organizer to do? To help you start your life together on the right foot. To make the cold, hard decisions around what to keep and what to dump. To make the couple feel like this home is theirs together, not one person encroaching on another person's space. It's important stuff, and speaking to that emotional job to be done, segmenting customers all looking for the same thing will dramatically improve your product and the likelihood it succeeds. A kitchen organized wrong can create grudges. It can create bitterness. It can create someone making a podcast years later upset about their union mug, which honestly was big, yes, but it could also have things like granola or oatmeal or hot chocolate. Plus, it was good luck. It was a good mug. I'll die on that hill. Maybe I needed this fake product a few years back. So what's this all take? What's it look like? It's a landing page you make on Wix. I'll pop the link in the show notes. It's probably a few customer interviews to nail down the problem you're really solving. It's a few ads, maybe a social profile you need to create, some content around what you'll do, and then the proxy of the product. It's answering the core four questions. Who's it for? How will you find them? How can you create value for them in the next 10 days? What are they really hiring you to do? But the hardest thing by far is the choosing. Choosing to spend your time doing it. Choosing to understand that it might not work and that's okay. Choosing a customer to focus on first. Choosing to play a game that is really worth winning. One that can change your life if you're willing to keep playing hands. 
You can do this stuff. You've just got to choose to do it. Oh, I just thought of a name for the startup. Counterintuitive, because counter works both ways. You get it. Have a great week. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea you'd like to take seriously, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll get back to you in 72 hours and can be working on your startup and your entrepreneurial handbook by then. Have a great week.